Walters is your pregame spot for July 4th as Walters will open its doors at a special time of 9 on Monday morning. Visit walters.com backslash events for more information. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two balls and two strikes. Garrett comes set. And the pitch. Swing and a ground ball left side and through for a base hit. And that wild pitch. Yep. Moving the runner up. Allows Aguilar to score because he likely would not have scored on the Garcia single there. He would have just moved up the third. But the RBI by Garcia is 24th. And the Marlins add to the lead. It's now 5-3. Very excited to be here for another year. Uh, like I've always said, you know, this for me, this is... My home. This is my, you know, I love it here. Uh, I love the people I work with here. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, July 3rd, 2022, along with BassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. One and ten. Let that sink in. One and ten. That now is the Nats record against the Miami Marlins this season after a 5-3 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Saturday. You know, the Marlins this season have 36 wins. 10 of the wins have come against the Nats. 27.8% of your Miami Marlins victories this season have come against our Nationals, who now this season are 29-51, and second-worst record in the National League. There is the game to discuss, but there also is big Nats news to discuss. And, you know, I wonder if Mark Lerner is, in fact, a loyal listener to the Nats Chat podcast, because on the previous installment of the pod, uh, did bring up the, oh, by the way, deadline that was approaching, the deadline by which the Nats needed to decide on exercising the 2023 club options on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Well, we on Saturday afternoon got the news. Uh, The Nats announced that they have exercised the 2023 contract options on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez, or as the Nats call him in the press release, Dave Martinez. That just does not sound right, Dave Martinez. He's Davey to all of us. Uh, But Mark, not a shocker, but this obviously is a notable development. And so barring the unforeseen, Mike and Dave will be back for 2023. And lucky us, we get to dance this dance all over again next year in terms of the futures of Mike and Dave. It's part of covering the Nationals organization is constantly wondering, okay, when is the manager, when is the GM's contracts up? And we're going to go through this yet again. But first of all, props to you. You've been on this for a while now. You knew this was coming up. You kept bringing it up and it did finally happen. And I think it's good that they did it now. It didn't really take this all the way down to the end. They had until July 15th to settle it. Like you said, I don't, I was never all that concerned. Just given the overall state of things in the organization, it never made a lot of sense to me to think that they would not bring them back at this point. Are you really going to do that 
as you're in the early stages of a rebuild with the specter of an ownership change coming sometime in the near or long-term future. I wasn't surprised by any of it, but I was glad to see it get done, not really drag this out any longer. And, you know, whatever you may think about the current state of things, I think there's something to be said for this. Mike Rizzo has been with the organization since 2006, and he's been the GM since 2009. He's now guaranteed to be here through at least 2023. Dave Martinez, or Davey Martinez, depending on your preference, was here in 2018 and is now going to be here through 2023. He's going to be here for six seasons. And no previous manager survived more than two and a half seasons here. For an organization that has had plenty of turnover, plenty of changes, and is going to have more turnover and more changes in other areas, I think there's something to be said for some stability. The two people who are the figureheads of the organization on a daily basis are still going to be here. And I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny with Davey, and we've talked about this, but so this is year five for Davey as an ads manager. And you could argue four of the five years have not been good years, certainly by uh, expectation standpoint from 2018. 2018 was a winning season, but it was not a very good season. With the exception of 2019, uh, you've had disappointing seasons. But I think most people look at Davey and say, yeah, he probably does deserve to be back because I don't think anybody puts the current state of the team on Davey Martinez. So I just think that that's kind of interesting because other managers have been here and have done quite well and yet have been gone, right? Like Dusty Baker, two great seasons, was gone. Davey Johnson had, uh, what, two plus pretty good seasons if you if you look at what he did with the Nats, you know, gone. So w- was Davey here in 2011? He took over mid-11 when uh, Jim Riggleman resigned and went to caddies to share his uh, miseries with the world. Yeah, so Davey had like two good seasons and change and was gone. So that kind of a thing. So with Davey Martinez, I think what stands out too is the money he's going to get for next year. We know that the learners don't like to pay managers, and yet the reports are that Davey's going to make $3.5 million next season. We're not used to that. And, you know, look, who knows if the learners will still be the owners of the team next season, but that does stand out. I mean, Davey Martinez initially was making less than a million dollars per year as Nats manager. Now he's got that bumped up to $3.5 million for a team that next season probably is not going to be very good. I think that definitely like leaps out in terms of the history of this ownership group when it comes to paying managers. Yeah. And it shows you how far a World Series trophy goes. You know, it buys you a lot of goodwill, in this case, actual hard cash that you get as a result of it. If they don't do that in 2019, Davey's probably not still here at this point, or certainly they'd get to a point they say, well, we think the contract's up, so we're going to move on and go somewhere else. So, you know, it does buy you a lot of goodwill. Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know. But I think when we talk about Davey Martinez as a manager, there's plenty of things you can say from a an in-game standpoint and, and in terms of like what we actually see on the field that makes you say, I think he could be better at that. But I still, you know, five years into this, see and hear from everyone who's around him nothing but glowing praise about the way that he conducts himself and the way that he leads the franchise off the field. The respect he has, the admiration he has for the way he's able to develop the relationships with his players, with his staff, with everyone else who works there, the humanity that he shows in good times and in bad, the way he is able to stay even keeled through all of this stuff. And that was the thing that Mark Lerner said. I remember the night they win the World Series in the clubhouse, Mark is saying to me, how Davey stayed patient through 19 and 31, I'll never know, but he did. And that's among the reasons that they did turn it around. So even as things are looking so awful right now, 
not to say they're going to turn it around this year. They're not. But he remains the same guy throughout. And that's a really good quality to have as a manager. Yes, you'd like to see more wins than losses, especially as you move forward in this rebuild. But I think he has earned a lot over this time here and has earned the respect of all these guys, even when the results on the field have not been great. Yeah. And we know that a manager who doesn't relate well to his players, who doesn't preside over a healthy clubhouse, can end up presiding over a season that really goes wrong. And we saw that certainly in 2015 with the Nationals, with Matt Williams. I think it's interesting, too, that you know you have this history with Mike Rizzo and Joe Madden. Davey Martinez learned from Joe Madden. Davey was Joe's right-hand man for years with the Tampa Bay Rays and then the Chicago Cubs. So I think that that's kind of a cool connection. And, you know, Davey and Mike now are tied to the hip. I saw that Davey said something to you guys before the game on Saturday to the effect of there's no one else I'd rather be doing this with than Mike Rizzo. So I think that's kind of a cool thing. I couldn't do this without the supporting cast, you know, around me. And that comes from from the upstairs to the training staff to the coaches who, you know, I love. You know, organizational alignment matters a lot. And we have seen with uh, some of our other Washington, D.C. sports teams, when you do not have proper alignment between the front office and the coach or the front office and the manager, how really screwed up things can be. You seem with Mike and Davey to have that alignment. And I think that that matters because if you have those two guys on the same page, that can mean some really good things for you. We did get a statement from Mark Lerner in the press release on Saturday, quote, Mike and Davey have been leading the Washington Nationals for several years, and it is only right to continue with them at the forefront. Mike has led us through many different phases of our organization, and we believe his work during this current phase will pay off in the end. Davey has done a tremendous job in the clubhouse and in the dugout for five seasons. His continued determination and unwavering support of his players makes us proud. We are lucky to have Mike and Davey leading the way. So they called him Davey in the quote. Okay. Well, there you go. Okay. So maybe it's like if you're a close personal friend or a writer who covers a team, you can call him Davey. What I was going to say about uh, what you said before, the two of them being tied together, I think it's also important, the timing of it, that they are tied together in terms of when their contracts have been up, when the extensions have been done. There have been times in the past where you have a manager or a coach whose contract is up on a, in a different year than the GM. And what that can lead to, and I'm not saying that has always been the case, but it can lead to division there where one is saying, okay, I'm looking out for myself more than for the other. In this case, they really are tied to the hip. They're going through this rebuild together. And you would think whenever the time comes uh, a year from now or beyond a year from now, whether it's the Lerner family, whether it's somebody else owning the team, and they have to decide how they're going to move forward, my hunch would be, is that these two are going to f- have a similar fate. If things are going well, you see things getting better, they're probably both retained longer. If it's not going well, maybe you see wholesale changes. So I think it is important that they are kind of together on this. And it means that behind the scenes, they're pulling the same rope, trying to achieve the same thing. This isn't like, a, well, Rizzo is hoping that this happens and because that's going to save his job, but it's going to, you know, doesn't care if it affects Davey in a negative way. No, chances are they're tied together in this. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And that's not always the case in baseball. To those who are unfamiliar with this, Google Mike Sosha and Jerry Depoto and read about their relationship with the Angels and how screwed up that was years ago. So yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think we should just take for granted that these two guys are on the same page, certainly seem to be good guys. And they, you know, obviously have won a World Series together. Now, you know, I do think with Rizzo is it is a little tricky because he was so good 2009 through, you know, whatever year you want to sort of end 
when the good drafting ended and you know the bad drafting started. But it's been a bad run here now for a while in terms of drafting players, in terms of developing players. And I look at Rizzo and I say, okay, well, is he the guy who's going to take the Nats back to being good again? I think that he definitely deserves the opportunity. Like, I don't think he deserves to be fired because the Nats are bad now. I think he deserves the chance to general manage his way out of this. But I don't think you can have a true conversation about Mike Rizzo without acknowledging excellent job, certainly over the first five, six, seven, eight years of his tenure, however you want to sort of mark things. But lately, there are are a lot of things that are troubling. The bad draft picks, troubling. The lack of diamonds in the roughs in MLB drafts, troubling. The way that this team got old and lacked positional flex, troubling. So I don't know, especially in this day and age of analytics, to have an older guy with a scouting background running your front office, is that the way you want to be doing things? I think that's up for debate. But like I said, he does deserve the shot to get the Nats out of this, and hopefully he will get the Nats out of this. So, you know, I've said before that nobody was more responsible for the ascension of the franchise than Mike Rizzo. I think it's also fair to say that he's on the short list of people responsible for the devolving of the franchise since 2019. And it even goes back further than that if you want to talk about player development and and scouting and drafting, like you said. So a lot of times you would say, are we going to hold the GM accountable for their draft struggles. You'd say, well, isn't that on the scouting director? Isn't that on the people who are determining who to pick and then ultimately trying to turn them into big leaguers? So who are trying to develop them, the minor leagues? And I'd say yes. But in this case, Rizzo, because of his scouting background, I think has more influence in that draft room than a lot of GMs. If you've got one of these younger analytics-driven GMs, probably taking a back seat in the draft room to his guys who are actually out there watching these kids and deciding who to pick. But Rizzo is very involved. This year's draft is very important for him and for the franchise. They need to do this one right. And they need their last couple of uh, early round picks, their top prospects, Cavalli, uh, Cole Henry, even Jackson Rutledge, who's starting to make his way back from injuries. They need these guys to hit. And I mean that in the figurative sense. They need to pitch is what they need to do. It is an important time for them and for him and how he's going to be evaluated through all this. But like we've said all along, once the organization made the decision last July to tear down and start over, it's hard for me to say, okay, you are now going to evaluate the GM or make a decision on the GM before he's had an opportunity to start to see this thing through. doesn't mean he has an unlimited timeline to, to have success. You need to see steps. You need to see some of this moving along. But right now, I think it's too soon to judge how Rizzo has done as it pertains to the rebuild. A year from now, we start to have a little better idea of it. Yeah. I mean, the only reason you would have said to fire Rizzo after last year is if you just are like, if you're just so disgusted by the state of the team and you just have no faith that he can get the team out of this. But because he general managed the team to a World Series championship, like like we said, he deserves the chance to get his way out of this. So let's see what he does. But yeah, I mean, th- this is a big spot here for him. I thought last offseason was big. You know, they made some changes to the organization and in player development, and we'll see if they did enough. We'll see if they made the right moves. You know, I think the jury is very much out on that. And of course, you know, the wild card with everything, as we keep bringing up, is the ownership situation. I mean, Mike's and Dave's contract options for next year are picked up. That's it. So next year is another contract season for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. And you know what? If the Nats somehow got sold this offseason and some guy comes in and he's got unlimited money and he's not happy about things, he could get rid of these guys. Like, we don't know. Like, there, you know, there is that possibility. I'm not anticipating that. 
but we just don't know. So yeah, you know, like I, I think it's 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 good news if you're Mike and Davey that your options got picked up, but there's still a lot of work to be done and there's still nothing guaranteed moving forward. I mean, who's to say that next year won't be the last season for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez with the Nets? We just don't know. Yeah, I think if new owners are in place next season, and we don't know if that's going to be true or not, but if they are, uh, or certainly if they're in place, you know, in the first half of the season, it's going to be an evaluation year for them. And that includes everything. They're going to look at everything going on in every one of the organization and probably at the end of that season decide how do we want to proceed forward. So next year is important for Mike Rizzo, for Dave Martinez, for everybody who works for the Nationals or plays for the Nationals to show that there is some progress being made and that they are getting to where you can see where this is all going and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If they're on a 100-loss pace next year and even more than that, doing it with guys who don't seem like they are part of the long-term plan, now you're giving ownership, whoever's in charge, reason to think that they may need to start over or look for different leadership. If, however, you do see the progress, you see the signs that this thing is getting better, now you can say, okay, we think they are the men to continue to lead us, and then they'll have to make that decision at some point late next year. One more thing on this. So this could have been announced at any time over the next you know, four, five, six, seven days, whatever you want to say. When you announce something on a Saturday afternoon of July 4th weekend, you're really burying it. And I'm not saying the Nats did that intentionally, but like if you want this to get maximum attention, to me, you should have announced this, maybe waited until Tuesday or done it you know, earlier in the week. Why do you think the Nats announced this on the Saturday afternoon of July 4th weekend when you got people on vacation, you have people half paying attention to things? Do you think that they didn't want this to get a lot of attention? Do you think that the team just didn't think about maximizing this for exposure? I just I found that odd. A Saturday afternoon on July 4th weekend to announce that you picked up the options for maybe the two most important people in, in your organization. Maybe I'm giving them more credit than they deserve, but I do think they were trying to downplay it. I don't think they wanted this to be a big deal. Let's remember, it was not known publicly until uh, a few months ago that they had these clauses to have a, a contract option for next year. It was believed publicly uh, all along that they were three-year deals and that they were here. And Davey even said himself, I asked him today about if it was important for him that this was, that he was going to know his fate now in July and not have to wait till the end of the season. He said, he quite honestly, I didn't know that was in there until spring training. And once they told me, I was like, first I thought it was weird. Um, and then I thought, you know what, you know, whatever. That says to me that the organization and everybody involved were not trying to make a big deal out of this, that they almost saw it as an afterthought or as a, yeah, we have to do this. And maybe if things are going really bad, we'll make a, a change. And, and all of a sudden it's going to, you know, draw a lot of headlines because we're announcing that we're not retaining them. But I think deep down, they kind of hoped that none of this would have ever gotten out and both guys would just be assumed to be coming back next year. That's my interpretation of it. Maybe I'm reading more into it. Maybe I'm giving them more credit than that. But I actually took that to mean that they did not want this to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, just to compare it with another major recent contract extension in D.C. sports. So the commanders agreed on this extension with receiver Terry McLaurin. That news broke last Tuesday morning. The commanders still have not officially announced that. And my sense is they're waiting until after the holiday weekend. Announce it, have a press conference, make a big deal about it because it is this very well-received news item. And with the Nats, they put it out on the Saturday afternoon 
of July 4th weekend. By the way, I'm not sure Davey Martinez should be admitting what he admitted to you guys. That's <laughs> that's not a great look. You don't know what's in your contract? Come on, man. You got to know what's in your contract. I was surprised by that, uh, no doubt. The other point that he made that was news to all of us is he said that all of his coaches, he said it was important to him that all of his coaches got two-year deals as well and suggested that they're all coming back. Now, the caveat here, and I don't know the answer to this, was he only referring to the new guys who were hired coming into this year or any of the ones who'd been here before? So, for example, Jim Hickey was hired a year ago. Did he get a two-year deal then, which means this one's going to be up at the end of this year? Or did he get a one-year deal at the time, and then he got a new two-year deal this winter? I don't know the answer to that, but the way Davey was talking about it made it sound like, in his mind, his entire coaching staff is coming back as well. Yeah, and we'll see if that's good or bad. I mean, I think the jury is out on a lot of these guys right now, and uh, we will see. So, Mike Rizzo... Option picked up for next season. Davey Martinez, option picked up for next season. Roaming Rooster, the best fried chicken sandwich in the DMV, is expanding. You've already seen our location by Section 238 at Nationals Park, but now we have recently opened locations in Pike and Rose in Maryland, and in Virginia, we now have Burke and Chantilly. Our chicken is grain-fed, antibiotic-free, and only free-range. Roaming Rooster is serving homemade enhanced bun milkshakes and frozen custard scoops at select locations and currently working on rolling them out to all locations. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now Scott delivers the pitch, swung on, hit high in the air, playable left center. Sanchez coming in to his right, waits, and he makes the catch, and the game is over. Tanner Scott preserves a lead for the second straight day and gets the save for the Marlins, who continue their domination of the Nationals in 2022. And the Nats lost to the Marlins again this season on Saturday, a 5-3 loss at Nationals Park. Uh, Jackson Tatro was an ad starting pitcher, and he struggled for the first time in three starts. This was his fourth start at the major league level this season. Uh, he was good in starts two and three, was bad in start one, and was bad in this start number four. Four runs in four innings. He only gave up four hits, uh, a homer, a triple, a double, and a single. So he gave up uh, the cycle here. But the problem was the walks. He issued five walks in this game, 
He recorded just one strikeout, and he threw a lot of balls. 84 pitches, 44 strikes versus 40 balls. He began his outing by issuing a leadoff seven-pitch walk of John Birdie, despite Birdie having been down in the count at 1.12, then gave up a one-out first pitch, two-run homer to Jesus Aguilar. That came in a two-run Marlins first. Tatro did toss a scoreless top of the second, but in that inning, he issued two walks. He, in a one-run Marlins third, gave up a leadoff double to Garrett Cooper, issued a one-out five-pitch walk of Jesus Sanchez, and then in a Marlins one-run fourth, gave up a leadoff triple to Nick Fortes to the left center field gap on an 0-2 pitch, then gave up an RBI sack fly to Miguel Rojas, and then wasn't done. Gave up a one-out single to Brian De La Cruz, issued a one-out six-pitch walk of Garrett Cooper. So a lot of walks, a lot of first-pitch swings, it seemed like, from the Marlins in this game. And unfortunately, the Jackson Tatro, who we had seen over the previous two starts, we did not see on Saturday. So what you saw was really poor fastball command, and it was everything's doing the exact same thing. Facing a right-handed hitter, and the Marlins actually had mostly right-handers up against him, Everything was cutting away from them and ending up outside the zone too far off the plate. And he said he felt it. He knew it was happening. They think it might have been a mechanics thing uh, where he's kind of yanking his arm and, and cutting it off and making it do that. What's interesting is that basically the only two pitches he throws are a fastball and what is officially called a cutter, although Davey Martinez referred to it as more like a slider, but they're sort of similar things. So if your fastball is now moving the same way that your breaking ball is moving and they're both thrown fairly hard and you don't have a whole lot else to turn to, that's an uphill battle for you. So this was not a good one for him at all. He was pretty upset about it afterwards, uh, not pleased with the way that went. Trace Barrera, who caught him and has caught him a lot in the minor leagues over the years, said he's seen him do this before, and he's always been good about figuring it out and getting it back. So that's, I suppose, a good sign. It's unfortunate they couldn't solve that within the course of a game, um, but it was obvious that was his problem. They couldn't fix it, and there was no other way to go about it. That's what he throws. So he just kept throwing that same pitch to the same location off the plate, and it wasn't working. No, it wasn't. Uh, the Marlins had themselves a pretty good time here batting against Jackson Tatro on Saturday. Now, the Nets bullpen was good in this game. Andres Machado, two scoreless innings. Reed Garrett did give up a run in the seventh, but Steve Ciszek, two perfect innings with two strikeouts. So Machado, Garrett, and Ciszek combined to allow one run in five innings. I saw you tweeted this, and I agreed. It didn't feel this way, but the Nets were in this game, and the bullpen actually played a really big role in that. The bullpen kept this game close, especially Machado and Ciszek. Yeah, and to their credit, I mean, you're asking now for five innings out of them, and you have two guys going multiple innings, so good on them for doing that. And yeah, they kept it within striking distance, and it just, look, they were down one run at one point, and then it became two. Maybe it's just because of the way things have gone against the Marlins this year. Maybe it's just because of the Nats' really lack of ability to mount rallies late in games. They have not done it. I looked it up. They're last in the league in OPS from the seventh inning on. 600 OPS as a team from the seventh inning on. It never really felt like they were going to come back. Now, I mean, there was a moment in the seventh. They've got two on and one out, and they're down at that point still one. No, they're down two runs at that point. But, you know, all it takes is one or two hits, and you are, are, are right back in this game again. They just couldn't do it. They have not been able to do it against the Marlins all year long. It is baffling to see, but it's been. it feels like the same formula against the Marlins all year long. They lose these games the same way. They're not scoring runs against them. They're giving up enough to find themselves down, and they're not mounting any kind of rallies late. And it's just, it's getting pretty tiresome to watch, to be honest. One in 10.
I mean, that is a jaw-dropping record against a team that really isn't that good. One in 10 are the Nats against the Marlins. So with the Nats offense in this game, just the three runs, just seven hits, just two walks, one for six with runners in scoring position. You mentioned the lack of late-game rallies by the Nats this season. I mean, something that really stood out to me, bottom of the eighth, the Nats have Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Nelson Cruz coming up. The three big boppers. This is still a game at this point. It's 5-3. You're only down by two. Soto strikes out. Bell strikes out. Nelson Cruz flies out. Uh, now, look, Juan Soto did have a homer and a walk in this game, so do want to give him credit for that. It was one of those opposite field Juan Soto home runs, uh, leadoff opposite field homer to left to cut the Nats deficit to 4-3. That came in the Nats' one-run six inning. We know Josh Bell has been great so far this year. He was not good in this game. He went 0 for 4. And Nelson Cruz in this game uh, had another bad game, 0 for 4. Nelson Cruz over his last five games now, 2 for 19 with two singles and two walks. You know, I was thinking about this. I was excited. I think a lot of people were excited for this trifecta of Soto, Bell, Cruz and what this could be for the Nats this season. And yes, Josh Bell overall has been very good. And yes, Juan Soto hasn't been as bad as I think some people make it out to be. It just hasn't been great by Juan Soto standards. But when I think about these three together in concert, I think it's been a disappointment. Like this has not been this offensive force that we thought it might be. And I felt like that bottom of the eighth on Saturday was a snapshot of that, that that, that, this Soto, Bell, Cruz, Triumvirate, just for whatever reason, has not delivered like we thought it might, like we hoped it might this season. Yeah, some credit to Stephen Okert, who has been really good, kind of quietly for the Marlins. He pitched that inning. He was great two nights in a row coming out of the bullpen. But the thing has been, it seems to me, that while all three of them have had their moment, certainly Bell, the majority of the season has had it, they haven't all three been clicking at the same time. How many times, you know, there have been a couple of individual games where it has worked out. I feel like they had it, uh, was it in Texas or was it against the Pirates where there was like a game where the three of them combined for something like seven for eight uh, in the first couple of innings and drove in five runs, something like that. We've talked about it from the beginning. This lineup was designed for the three of them to be producing. And unfortunately, even when two of them are, that's sometimes not enough. And certainly when only one of them is, it's uh, definitely not enough. And they just don't have enough thunder uh, across the rest of the lineup to do much damage. And on a day like this, when they're not really doing it at all, it's tough to watch. And they're just, you're hoping that somebody else comes through and they just don't have the horses to do that. And, you know, with Soto, like we said, the overall numbers are, they're fine by general standards. And he hits a home run. That was a good at bat against a lefty, drove an outside pitch. Like we keep saying for weeks now, he's always got at least one of those in him per game. Usually ends up in a double but he continues to not come through in the biggest moments when he's had the opportunity to do it and really impact a game. And I think that's been the hardest thing for him is that the numbers are okay, but the when he's done it has not been most advantageous to the team. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, You mentioned Tress Barrera. He was an at-starting catcher in this game. He batted out of the number eight spot, and he had a big hit in this game. He went one for two with a two-run single. Uh, Tress Barrera in the Nats two-run second in his first plate appearance here since being brought back up. Two out, two-run single to left field to tie the game at two despite having been down to the count at one point. One-two. We talked about this on the last installment of the podcast. Tres Pereira last season was a productive player for the Nats at the Major League level. Tres Pereira last season for the Nats, OPS plus a 112 over 107 plate appearances 
in 30 games. It was kind of a sneaky thing, but the Nats between Barrera and Riley Adams last year actually got some pretty good offensive production down the stretch of the season. And, you know, I don't think anybody has designs on him being, you know, Mike Piazza, but Barrera can hit a little bit. We've seen that. And here he is, his first plate appearance back, and he comes through with a pretty clutch hit for the Nats on Saturday. A pop-up slide. He stands there with his first hit of the big leagues this year. A clutch. Two out. Two strike. Two runs. Single to left. Ties this game. And unlike what we just said with Soto, Barrera has been very good in those situations. Did you know last year, it's only 28 plate appearances granted, but his slash line with runners in scoring position was 300, 500, 600. That's a 500 on base percentage and a 600 slugging percentage with runners in scoring position. I asked him about it after the game, and he said maybe being a catcher, being in those on the other end of those situations, helps him that he knows the pressure's on the pitcher. Pressure's not on the hitter in those spots. It's the pitcher who has to try to get out of this thing. And so he really tries to take that mindset to the plate as a hitter and say, hey, stay calm here. Just try to use the whole field. Get the runner in. He's the one who's now in trouble trying to get out of a jam. And it works for him. You know, is that going to keep up over the long run? I'm going to guess probably not. But he does seem to have some kind of knack. And it's funny, talking to him, he has very little major league experience. And and he's not, a you know, an old you know, minor league. He hasn't been around forever. I want to say he's 26 years old, but he just talks like a veteran. He, he talks like the classic backup catcher who's been around forever and has a lot of maturity and understanding of the game. He was talking about his work at AAA with Cade Cavalli, Cole Henry, talking about them as kids and about how, hey, they need to learn that when they get called up, it's going to be for good. Uh, that's what it's all about. It's not about making it to the big leagues. It's about sticking in the big leagues. He talked about Tatro, the work he's done with him over the years. I just, I came away really impressed with this guy who, you look at his baseball card and there's not a lot on it, but he acts like a much more experienced and mature big leaguer than you would think. Well, you certainly need catchers like that. And catcher is a position at which there just are so few good hitters anymore. So if you have maybe two of them in Kbert Ruiz and Tres Barrera, and we'll see with Riley Adams, we certainly don't want to write him off. That's good. I mean, you're ahead of the game if you have multiple guys at catcher who can actually hit a little bit. One other thing from this game, uh, we did have an error from Luis Garcia. Uh, Luis went one for four with a single. He in the bottom of the seventh had a one-out single to center, but also for Luis Garcia in this game, top of the fourth, a one-out throwing error on a full-count grounder off the bat of John Birdie. We didn't make mention of this from the Friday night game, but Luis Garcia in the Marlins' three-run third on Friday night, I thought a very poor relay throw to home plate on that Garrett Cooper two-out RBI double for a 3 nothing Marlins lead in that three-run Marlins third inning. So, you know, again, I know that there is this like hyper focus on Luis Garcia's defense, but we are still seeing the hiccups. We saw one on Friday night and we obviously saw another one on Saturday. That was just a bad throw to Josh Bell at first base. Yeah, that one was the classic example of a lackadaisical play from him in the field. And that's what they keep talking about with him. You've got to be engaged every single pitch, ready to go, no matter the play, no matter how routine it seems, you've got to be fully invested in it and treat them all uh, the same way. And what happened to him on that one was he kind of fielded it in front of him. And then because Birdie's a fast runner, he didn't bother to set his feet and make a good strong throw. And he just tried to flip it over there. The throw wasn't anywhere close. And it was really ugly. Even with a fast runner, get the ball, set your feet, make a good throw. He has a strong arm and try to get him out that way. 
he's got to do that 100% of the time. It can't be 90%, even 95% of the time. It's got to be 100% of the time that he takes the same approach, has the right mechanics, footwork, and all that stuff. And we're seeing exactly what we were told about him, and it's why they hesitated as long as they did to call him up, because they knew this was a regular occurrence for him in the field, and they were hoping that he could clean it up as much as possible in the minors before he called him up. They know it's still going to be, you know, a thing here. He's not getting sent down. He's not getting benched or anything like that. But you saw on display right there, that's exactly what they've been talking about all along. Yeah, Luis Garcia came into Saturday with minus eight defensive runs saved at shortstop this season, and that was only over 238 in the third innings at shortstop. That is a really bad defensive run save total in a short period of time like that. So work to be done for Luis Garcia defensively, although for the most part, he has been a bright spot offensively. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers again, Podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Don't forget that Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com and Sunday mornings at 9 on Sports Radio 96.5 FM at 8.50 a.m. In the Hampton Roads area, you can listen online at SportsRadio965FM.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with a look back at what happened one year ago, July 2021, as we take you through the month that changed everything for the Nats and the spotlight for this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast is on a 10-5 loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on Friday night, July 2nd, 2021. This is part of a four-game sweep for the Nats to the Dodgers at Nats Park July 4th weekend of last year. This was the game in which Kyle Schwarber got injured. Kyle Schwarber off his incredible month of June 2021. He was the National League Player of the Month. He over 27 games that month, hit 16 homers, slugged 760. Absurd, right? Well, Kyle Schwarber on July 2nd, 2021, ended up suffering a right hamstring injury, went on the 10-day injured list with a right hamstring strain the next day, and uh, that was it for Kyle Schwarber as a Nats. So we leave you with that look back, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. Here's the set. The pitch swung on, line in the right center. That's a base hit off the fastball. Ballinger plays it in right center. Schwarber will turn. Uh-oh. He'll hold up, and Schwarber hurt. hurt himself rounding first base. Absolutely did. It grabbed on him as he rounded the bag. Here comes. If he hit the bag awkwardly or if it happened just before that. And it looks like he's grabbing the back of the right leg and the right hamstring, trying to flex the knee, and he's just banged his helmet on the ground. And he is hobbling coming off the field. The headline item is Kyle Schwerber on the day on which he is named National League Player of the Month. This is somebody's idea of a cruel joke. Kyle Schwerber laces a two-out single to right center in the bottom of the second inning, but he, in running to first base, hurts his right hamstring, ends up leaving the game. It did not look good. Like you said, we'll see what the testing ultimately shows this injury to be. But I thought the visual in all of this was, first of all, Schwarber putting like no weight on that leg, but also Schwarber while being checked on the field, slamming his batting helmet on the infield dirt. That seemed to say it all. He knows this isn't some minor thing, or at least he suspects 
that this isn't some minor thing. Did you get any kind of an inkling from Davey in the postgame presser of, I mean, not that Davey would know the severity of this, but did you get the sense that Davey thinks that this is a serious injury? Yeah, as much as you can read between the lines and the body language and everything else, I think they have a hunch. He was saying things like, He's pretty wrapped up. You know, he's get, he'll get a, the MRI tomorrow and we'll go from there. Oh, always, you always got to think positive. That was a pretty down group after this game. And, you know, sometimes you can just kind of tell. And that, I mean, that really grabbed him. That wasn't a, oh, he just kind of felt something finished out, you know, running down the line. Like, no, that was instantaneous. And just the fact he could barely even walk off the field. A lot of times you'll, you'll strain a hamstring or hurt an ankle or something and you can walk off the field. Maybe you can't run, but you can walk off. He could barely walk off the field. And I'm imagining knowing that dugout tunnel, there's a big set of stairs then to go back up to the clubhouse. He might have needed assistance just to get up those stairs. That's not good. Yeah, I mean, the fear is that it's a tear. The fear is that this is a serious hamstring tear, but we'll hope for the best. It's remarkable, though, man, because at various points this season, we've said about the Nats, you know, they are healthy. Injuries are not the reason the Nats aren't doing well when they weren't doing well. But you've also had pockets of time in which the Nats have really been hit hard by injuries slash absences. Of course, the COVID situation early in the season. And now all of a sudden, just over a handful of days, right? I mean, obviously, like Steven Strasburg has been out for a while and Daniel Hudson now has been out for a while. But, you know, Eric Fetty goes on the IL and you've had to put Jordy Mercer on the IL. You've had other relievers go on the IL in recent times. Trey Turner now has missed the last two games. And now Kyle Schwarber is in danger of missing time. It feels like all of a sudden, and I know this can happen with injuries, but like all of a sudden, the Nats have been hit hard by this injury bug and you don't know where to turn. You're almost afraid to like refresh Twitter on a daily basis to see like who surprisingly was injured and got put on the IL today. And now in conjunction with that, you have injuries happening in games. It's not pretty. And this is like the worst spot of all with no off days and the Nats facing all these good teams heading into the All-Star break. It's funny you use that term, Al, because I don't know if you heard Max after the game. Here's his quote about the injuries of the team. Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, I don't feel like we have an injury bug. We have an injury rat running around the clubhouse. So it feels like it's just biting everybody at this point in time. So, you know, look, they know this isn't just any kind of normal thing. This is like a real run of injuries and bad injuries to prominent players. And yeah, you're right about you couldn't pick a worse time for it to happen where you're already in the middle of a stretch with no off days where you're facing the best competition you're going to face for maybe the whole season here all in one stretch. And we said at the outset of this, they just kind of need to hold their own during this. We weren't even saying they need to thrive. They just need to hold their own. Well, that was going to be a challenge when they were healthy. If they're not healthy, it's really, really going to be a challenge. And you know, the flip side of that is just like on Thursday, they were in a position to win the game. They were ahead. Now there was still a lot of game left, but they were ahead. You got a great start from Max Scherzer in spite of all this stuff that's happened. And then they not only couldn't win, but lost like in pretty dominating fashion in the end. So that does not bode well for what's coming ahead. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.